Turn, please, to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we're going through the book of Romans verse by verse. In chapter 2, Paul addressed the religious moralist who thought he was keeping the law good enough. You know what that looks like today when people think they're keeping the law good enough? They say, well, I'm a good person. You know, at the end, God's going to take all my good works and put them on one side, and then put all my bad works on the other side, and uh, I hope I'll go to heaven because my good works outweigh my bad. You know, that's a modern-day moralist. The Jewish moralist that Paul is addressing, well, they were quite a bit more strict than that. They said that uh, these people are sinners. But Lord, I thank you. I'm not like them. You know, I pray twice or three times in a day. I fast twice a week. You know, and, and then they tell God all of the things that he does to the glory of himself. <laughs> okay. And does God hear those prayers? <clears throat> well, God knows everything. So we can say that God hears the prayers. Does God answer those prayers? No. No, he does not attend those prayers, does not bless those prayers. And so he does not really hear them in the sense of what hearing really means. So that's the moralist. Paul knew what the moralists were like. He knew how they thought because he himself had been one of those religious moralists until God addressed him on the, the road to Damascus, changed his heart and his life forever. And before that, before the moralist of chapter 2, we saw the heathen of chapter 1. And the heathen, well, he didn't have the law of God written. He didn't uh, understand the codified truths of the word of God. But he did have the witness of God in his heart because he's made in the image of God. So the law was there. The law was there and he could understand it. It wouldn't be enough to save him. Natural revelation can never do that. But it could tell him right from wrong and guide his conscience. But you know, you know what happens when you sin? You get harder, don't you? The, the first time you sin, in some particular way, it can be very, very difficult. Your conscience bothers you, and uh, you feel bad about yourself. You feel bad about the situation. And the next time, it's still that way. And the next time, it's still that way. But as you continue in any particular sin, pretty soon you'll find yourself hardened to that sin. And pretty soon you'll be used to it. And your conscience doesn't bother you anymore. And um, this happens to people. And it happens to societies, too. I mean, society needs to function in certain ways if it's going to exist. Um, can you imagine a society that uh, glorified murder? Best thing you can do would be murder somebody. Uh, that society wouldn't be around very long, would it? Okay, so that, that wouldn't make it. That wouldn't last. But how about glorifying sexual sins? I mean, after all, do whatever pleases you. I mean, it's up to you, you know. Someday you can, well, you know, just do what you want, but someday you can get married, you can settle down, and you get rid of all those other things, and you can just live a normal life. That's a philosophy that's out there, you know. Yeah. You know, lying, stealing. When stealing becomes appropriate, how, how's a society going to make it? See, these are all things that are ingrained in us as people, you know. 
And a society can remove these things from its corporate conscience, but when it does, it just leads itself open to destruction. So society can become so wicked, and people themselves can become so wicked that the Bible calls it reprobation. And in reprobation, what will happen is people will not only sin without a conscience, but they'll approve of the sin. And they'll even go so far as to say that it's the right thing to do. Who are you to judge me? I'm doing what I want to do, and I'm doing what's good. You know. And the next step is what you're doing by refraining is bad. What you're doing by not accepting me in my sin is bad. Of course, they won't say in my sin, right? They'll say in my lifestyle or in my choices. Okay. Well, that's the ugly picture that we see. And we saw what that looked like in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. I won't read those again uh, for lack of time. But to open up, let me just do take you to a scripture. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Paul concludes his whole talk about the the heathen and the moralist Jew, by saying, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, which is odd. What does not mean he's, that's not his nationality? doesn't mean that. He's talking about one of God's people. He's not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Well, he's not denying that circumcision exists. Of course it exists. But the answer is, He's a Jew who's one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So then it led us up to to where we happen to be. And I think uh, I won't give a recap of that for lack of time, but but we dealt with verses 1 through 20 uh, all together in one sermon. And it all concluded by saying, therefore, by the deeds of the flesh, or by, sorry, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in its sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And so, it, uh, very, very true, and we're going to see this going on uh, throughout the book of Romans. Now, what we come to today is an interesting passage. And um, I probably gave you more of an outline then we're going to get to. Because as you keep working with it, you realize there's more and more to say. I want to be cautious as I do that. This is a loaded paragraph that we're coming to. Verses 21 through 26. It's a massive paragraph. It's considered by many to be the heart of the gospel. In fact, Leon Morris said this, this is possibly the single most important paragraph ever written. Now, hyperbole exists, but I think Leon Morris means exactly what he says because of the subjects that it covers. It doesn't cover them in detail, though. Okay, we're going to see a lot of words. That's why I've outlined yourself very differently here. Uh, We're going to see a lot of concepts, a lot of words, and we're not going to deal in depth with any of them because um, it would just take many, many weeks to do that. And then, because of the way that I preach, Uh, I would have kind of exhausted the book of Romans. Because the book of Romans is going to do this for us. However, if you do want to find uh, someone that um, 
that actually dealt with it in tremendous detail. See, sometimes we talk about the forest and the trees, you know. So we're going to talk about the forest today, okay. And then we'll be talking about the trees a little bit later. And some of the times we'll even delve down into the leaves of the trees, okay. So examining those things in that careful of detail. But if you want to read someone uh, that actually dealt with the forest by the leaves, Martin Lloyd-Jones is your guy. Great guy. Martin Lloyd-Jones, an excellent preacher. 14 volumes on Romans. Okay? So there you go. Most Bible commentaries, whole Bible commentaries aren't 14 volumes. Most of them aren't. Matthew Henry, tremendous commentary. Six volumes. Okay? 14 volumes on the book of Romans. Martin Lloyd-Jones, if you happen to have a spare $370 around, you can buy it from Christian Book Distributors. Okay? There you go. Maybe it's on Lagos. I don't know. Is it Pastor Ken? You think it is? Okay. Yeah. I don't have Lagos, so I don't know. <laughs> so at any rate, there you go. You know, just a, a wonderful, wonderful exposition full of, of true heart and such like that. Let's read this greatest paragraph in the opinion of many, 21 through 26 of chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we'll see how far we get. My guess is we'll make it down to propitiation and pick up there next week <coughs> with a, a detailed look at propitiation because that particular word, as important as it is, and the concept as important as it is, it'll be throughout the book of Romans, but the word only occurs one time in the book of Romans and four times in the New Testament. So there you go. And so we will, I think, save that one for a detailed look at those four times next week, Lord willing. Well, this paragraph is the heart of the gospel. It's loaded. Verse 20 says it very well. By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So how then are we justified? How then do we have justification? And that's why I put that uh, extra catechism in there to remind us what justification is. And uh, just for me to remind you once more, Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. And so a lot of times people think of justification, they think of, yeah, Jesus died on the cross and he forgave my sins by his blood. And, and they are exactly right. But there's another part to it too. His righteous life is imputed to us. We're righteous in His sight. We're, as it talks about in the book of Revelation, we're dressed in white robes. 
White robes are not our own making. We don't make our own white robes. Those white robes symbolize the righteousness of Jesus Christ that's been imputed to us, imputed just as our sins were imputed to Christ to making him, as Luther says, and I almost hesitate to say it, but Luther said it, I think he's right, the greatest sinner ever. Why would Jesus be the greatest sinner ever? Because he bore all of the sins of all of the elect. So yes, yes. You know, not just my sins, not just your sins, but all of the sins of all of the elect, Old Testament and New Testament, borne by the Lord Jesus Christ, imputed to him as if he had done them, even though he had never sinned at all. Never personally sinned at all. But he obeyed the law of God perfectly, didn't he? Never sinned. Whenever a situation came up, not a sin. Are, are thoughts sinful? Yeah. Thoughts are not for her. She never had a sinful thought. Okay. We can't even imagine that, really. We can't picture that because it isn't anywhere near our experience. But it was the way the Lord Jesus Christ lived. He fulfilled the law of God perfectly, which you and I cannot do by the law of no man can be justified. But we're justified by his law keeping. So he has a perfect life that's imputed to us, as imperfect as we are, and our sins that we still feel, and our sins that we still commit, and our sins that we still know, he paid for on the cross. The atonement is far more remarkable than we could ever imagine. And every true Christian... Every true Christian knows something of the atonement. They know something of the, the fact that Jesus Christ has forgiven their sins, but sometimes they fall into a category, and I do too, and, and maybe you do too, that um, we just think, well, you know, um, yeah, my sins are forgiven, but uh, I'm such a, a dirty, rotten, stinky mess, you know. And that's true. On the other hand, God, as he looks at us, doesn't see a dirty, rotten, stinky mess. He sees the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to us. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Does that mean we should continue in sin that grace may abound? Nope. (laughs) Just put it that way. We'll see that later. But we got to really understand these things. Otherwise... This may we continue and say that grace may abound doesn't mean anything to us. It's saying, well, of course not. You know, no. There, there's reasons that Paul asked that question. You know, because we could go way off the track and say, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. A Christian should do what they want to do, because they should want to do what God wants them to do. That's the truth. So there you go. Anyway. Verse 21, righteousness apart from the law. Romans is kind of like a a sermon in the way that it's written. It's very organized. He uses Old Testament scriptures all of the time. Um, I'll just turn you to this one. I think I put it on your outline, but I didn't write it in, I don't think. Um, Psalm 143 is really the thought. um, They didn't have chapter verse divisions. And so when Paul quotes or any of the apostles quote the uh, the Old Testament, you're going to find a lot of times it's the middle of a verse. Okay, well, that verse divisions are, 
are um, imposed upon the text. But it says here in Psalm 143, verse 2, Do not enter into judgment with your servant. And then here it is. For in your sight, no one is living righteously. Okay. It's in God's sight. No one is living righteously. And that's exactly where we get this whole idea. Um, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. And uh, it's written, and uh, it's revealed to the law and the prophets. You know. So the law does not and cannot save us. Why? Because we've broken the law. We're sinners in Adam. We'll see that in chapter 5. We're sinners by birth, coming from the womb, speaking lies. And sinners by choice, because you and I know that we do choose to sin. Sometimes we do, to our shame. So, liberal theologians, I just hate to label things, but there's philosophies that are out there. They like to talk about man being basically good. A lot of people believe that man is basically good. I think maybe there's fewer that think that now than they used to. But uh, some people will tell you, no, man's basically good deep down inside. Well, verse 23 should stop all of that, of course, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But this whole idea of man being basically good and that he can do good can go so far, and we will agree that man can do good, by the way. He can do good things. He can do kind things. He can do helpful things to his neighbor. He can't do any good towards God. can't do that. But he can do good towards his fellow man. But if man is basically good, why would he need a Savior? And if he doesn't need a Savior, why does Jesus Christ die on the cross? And uh, unless they're absolute, full-out heretics that don't believe the Bible is true at all, they have to believe Jesus died on the cross. Okay? They have to believe that. I mean, it's told to us how many times? We have four Gospels that tell us that. We have it told to us in the epistles over and over again. And the Old Testament even tells us what was going to happen. Uh, later on, read Psalm 22. And then marvel at the fact of crucifixion before it existed. Psalm 22, written a good thousand years uh, before Christ written before the Romans, invented crucifixion. And we see the pain and anguish of it in Psalm 22. Well, you can do that later. Not now, please. Uh, I'll call you on it if I see you looking it up. Okay? <laughs> so, Psalm 22, write it down, look it up later. So at any rate, you know, um, why would Jesus die on the cross then? I'm sorry, well, he's, he's an unfortunate victim. Well, that's not going to fly very well. Very, very few are going to swallow that one, you know, that he's an unfortunate victim. Because again, you'd have to deny what the Lord himself says when he says that uh, he could call a legions of angels to come and save him. He had that power. He could have done that. He said, well, no, no. He, he needed to die because he set a good example for us. Because our problem isn't so much sin in the general sense. This is the liberal theologian talking now. Our problem isn't so much sin in the general sense. Our problem is selfishness. We're really selfish, and we need to get over that. 
I agree that we're selfish. <laughs> agree, absolutely. But if that's as far as you go, that Jesus died as an example to show us that we shouldn't be selfish, then we really have taken away the very heart and meaning and reason for the atonement. You know, uh, it's like all heresies. Almost all, almost all heresies. Um, Scientology might be a uh, an example that doesn't fit this model because that's really whacked out there. <laughs> okay. But uh, almost all heresies have some grain of truth somewhere along the line that makes it somewhat palatable. And then it's mixed in with the rat poison, you know. And so you eat it all together in one big meal. And, and how much rat poison does it take to kill you? I don't know. I don't want to find out, <laughs> you know. But uh, I know that. The heresy is like that. And, um, you know, we are deeply selfish, absolutely. We do not love our neighbor as ourselves. We do not love God supremely. That's the law of God. And the death of Christ is much more than an example of selflessness that we should imitate. It goes much deeper than that. By nature, we're idolaters, and by nature, we're haters of God. Not a single child of Adam's race will be saved by law-keeping. In fact, Luther said this, the purpose of the law is not to justify, but to terrify. But we live in Christianity doesn't want to do a lot of terrifying. Don't want to scare people. You know, we want people to be happy. We want people to feel good. You know, they're coming to church, they're, they're bummed out, you know. But we're going to tell them how great they are, how good they are, the potential that they have. And just think of the marvelous things that you can do if you only try hard enough. And there we go, right back to trying hard enough again. Well, Luther said, nope, the, the law is not to justify, but to terrify. And Spurgeon, I think I put this quote in a couple weeks ago. Spurgeon says, all the law can do is show us our sin. The object of the law of God is not to cleanse us, but to show us how much cleansing we need to reveal our disease, not to find a remedy for our disease. So no man can be saved on his own. No man can stand before a thrice holy God unless he's absolutely righteous. But what's the same verse 21? But now. See, we're doing pretty good on our exposition. We've got two words in so far. <laughs> okay. But now. The righteousness of God apart from the law, which can only condemn us. But now, the promise has come. The very promises spoken of throughout the Old Testament. Do the law and gospels testify? Uh, turn to Luke 24. Familiar passage for so many of you. You can keep your finger there in Romans 3. But uh, Luke 24 these are the words of the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the Emmaus Road and then again to his disciples. Okay. This is what he has to say about this. Okay. Do the law and prophets testify? Luke 24, verses 25 through 27. Then he, Christ, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? <clears throat> and notice, law and prophets. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, 
he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. As you read the Old Testament, you must look for Jesus because he's there. there. Look at uh, verse 46. To the disciples. Um, Well, go back to verse 44, sorry. And then he, Christ, said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. You ever wonder why Peter could preach such a marvelous gospel message 40 days uh, after, you know, uh, the day of Pentecost? 40 days later. How could he do that? Well, his understanding had been open. The scriptures that he knew, and he had a pretty good knowledge of the scriptures, and being with Christ for three years will give you a good knowledge of the scriptures, and, of course, being raised uh, in a Jewish environment uh, and going to synagogue schools and such like that. He'd never been trained like the rabbis had. And so they marveled at his understanding and knowledge, and all of the disciples marveled at what they knew. They didn't have that kind of formal education. But they had education in the school of Christ. And they're not going to do better than that. He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, thus it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. So, you know, um, Pastor Ken talked a little bit about hyper-Calvinism, in the, the first, um, uh, at the 10 o'clock service, uh, we are not hyper-Calvinists. Uh, we believe in evangelism. We believe in preaching the gospel to every creature. We believe that the gospel needs to go into all the nations. But we also believe that it will never take effect until God causes it to take effect. And that's not hyper-Calvinism. That's biblical truth. So... Come to the 10 o'clock and, and, and learn. It's, it's, even if you know the doctrines of grace well, you will profit from, from coming to the 10 o'clock. So in all the scriptures, you know, so we, you know what scripture they had? They didn't have Matthew, they didn't have Mark, they didn't have Luke, didn't have John, didn't have Romans. Didn't, you know. They had the Old Testament scriptures, that's what they had. And they found Christ in the Old Testament scriptures. Verse 22 Back to, back to Romans 3. Verse 22, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all who believe. Now, let me just hammer that home for a minute because that is, is vitally important. If you don't hear anything else today, you, you really do need to hear this. This is important. I've got a question for you. And everybody should answer this question in their own heart and in their own mind. And listen to how I ask it, because how I ask it is going to be very important. So the question for you is, right now, this very moment, do you believe? Now, when people join the church, and we've got um, six applicants for membership right now, we'll be revealing those soon and and, uh, hearing their testimonies soon. And that's great. 
We love to hear testimonies. Testimonies are a blessing. Uh, they're great. Um, they help us when we write our testimonies to remember the work that God's done in our own heart and life. But I didn't ask you, did you believe back then? And I'm not asking you, is, are you going to believe someday? I'm asking you, as you sit in your pew right now, this very moment, do you believe in Jesus the Christ? And are you trusting in him for all who believe? And my friends, only for those that believe. Only for those who believe. Now, that's the way that this is usually translated. And it, it's, it's very true. There's no doubt that it's true. But there is an alternate translation here that also is true. And it's gained uh, more popularity as time has gone on um, through conservative scholars. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But Greek is kind of an unusual language. I noticed that when I was studying in my Greek, I thought, wait a minute. You know, um, is that in or of? And it really depends on how you take it. I don't want to get in too deep into the weeds in that. But in or of? The, is, it the, is it the faith in Christ or the faith of Christ? And uh, so I went to my, well, my go-to guy. Got a go-to guy in Greek. Um, he doesn't know me, but I know him and uh, enjoy him very much. Daniel Wallace, excellent, excellent scholar. And so I went to Daniel Wallace and said, what is Dallas, Daniel Wallace going to say about this? Because I would kind of sure he'd address it. And he did. He did address it. And he's talking about uh, the phrase, which is pistis Christu. Uh, pistis Yehu Christu. Okay, so that's, that's the Greek there. And it can be translated the faith of Christ. And it can even be translated the faithfulness of Christ. I thought, well, that's interesting. And Daniel Wallace actually preferred that. He said, that's what I think that it actually means. That's, I'm going to take it in that way uh, because of the genitive. And, okay. There you go. If you want to have a Greek discussion later, we can do that. If, but, uh, you know, it, it's just, uh, that's what he said. And I looked at it, that made sense. So I went and, and the, the free Bible gateway that we have and looked at it in 30 different translations. And, um, you know, just that verse. It wasn't that awesome to do. <laughs> it wasn't that hard. You know, you can do that in a few minutes. And really, there were a few that said the faith of Christ. There was only one that said the faithfulness of Christ, uh, because this peace test can be faithfulness too. And that was the net translation. And I think I put it on your outline there just to give you an idea of it. Um, the net Bible was the only one I saw that actually did this. Name, <coughs> excuse me, namely the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Okay, which one's right? Well, they're both right, you know. Certainly you have to have faith in Jesus Christ. It's to all who believe. But it's also the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that makes it possible for us to be saved and justified because of him. And so, at any rate, both are true. We must have faith in Jesus 
and we're righteous because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So, so you can take it for what it is. There's nothing wrong with your translation of your Bible. It's just fine. It's just good. Just know that uh, the, also there's another truth that's taught too, is uh, Christ's imputed righteousness. First uh, Corinthians uh, 1.30, it's on your outline. It's because of him, God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, and we could say our holiness, and our redemption. Okay. Over translation, yes. Over translation, yes. But um, it is correct. There's only one who lived a perfect, sinless, holy life. The law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament attest to it. The Lord Jesus Christ, who perfectly fulfilled the law of God, lived without sin, born perfect, and lived perfectly. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I don't say things like that to, to put any doubt in your mind about your translation. Okay, that's not what it is. But it's interesting, when you do read in the Greek, you do get different uh, nuances that come through that you can think about and, and kind of uh, mull over in your mind and can be very profitable. Second Corinthians 5, verse 21. For he, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And just one more Greek note, that might become, doesn't mean, well, maybe we will, and maybe we won't. It's a purpose clause. He did it, well, you could even say, he did it so that we would become the righteousness of God in him. But it's almost always translated might. But don't ever think that that might there is a might of doubt. Maybe yes, maybe no. It's not. It's a might of might. Okay. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Some of the most famous verses in all of the Bible, um, used evangelistically all of the time, and, and properly so. Properly so. Men need to see that they're sinners. They need to understand that, you know. He died, not for his sins, but for ours. Just, just a little bit longer here. Turn to Isaiah 53. A couple of passages in Isaiah that I think will, will really help us here. A couple of passages in Isaiah. Isaiah 53, famous passage. Now, how many times we've heard it read in our communion service. And uh, if you want to read it in the next communion service we have, um, feel free. You know, I never get tired of it. We should never get tired of it. It's a great passage. Uh, Isaiah 53 Starting in verse number four, <clears throat> talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, a good 600 years before his incarnation. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. In other words, we thought it was God that was doing that to him. And they're right, it was God doing that. But they thought it was God doing that to him because of what he had done. What we had done. That's why. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone 
to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Look at chapter 50, verse 6. Chapter 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Picture of what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. Move to justification. This is about where we probably will stop. Justification. Found in verse 24, beginning of it. Being justified freely by his grace. Romans 3.24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You notice there's two different um, important points there in verse 24. Uh, One is justification, and one is redemption. And a simple way to think of justification is this. I mean, just think of it like you're in a courtroom setting, and the judge says, not guilty. That's the way to think about justification. Whenever you see justification, think of not guilty. Okay, And Satan, the accuser, cannot even lay a charge to God's elect. Uh, Paul will tell us that a little bit later in the epistle, in chapter 8, verse 33, when he says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who could do that? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? And then he goes on to this long list Beautiful passage, wonderful passage, comforting passage. Justified freely. Your translation may be something a little different than that, which is fine. You know, there's a lot of ways to say it. Being justified as a gift, being justified gratuitously, being justified freely, or as the footnote in my Bible says, being justified without cost, you know. I like being justified without cost. That, that's kind of, an, kind of a cool way to put it, I think. Look at Isaiah 55. I think we'll close with this. Isaiah 55. Redemption. When you think of redemption, you have to think about it in the Old Testament sense, by the way. The rest of that verse is Redemption. And I'll just mention this. Um, as redemption, what do you think of redemption? Okay, so you think of justification, you think not guilty. With redemption, I think a good way to, for you to think about it as you work your way through the Bible is to say, you know, Israel was in Egyptian bondage. Nine of the ten plagues had fallen upon the Egyptians. They, they didn't like it. They, they hated the plagues. And uh, they had temporary sorrow and temporary repentance but it was very, very temporary. And with their stubborn hearts, the Egyptians and Pharaoh would not let the people go, and then finally there was Passover. The blood was shed. It was put upon the doorposts. The death angel came by. The Egyptians wailing and mourning because of the loss of the firstborn. Can you even imagine such a tragedy? Can you imagine such a thing happening? But it happened to them. The blood was shed of the lamb that protected those that put it on the doorposts. The other houses 
had death. And the people were redeemed from slavery. There's redemption. They were redeemed from slavery. When you're redeemed, you're redeemed from something. Okay. And redeemed from something and redeemed to something. Redeemed from slavery, redeemed to God. Jesus Christ has bought us a greater redemption than the, the exodus. That's a good example of it, is the exodus. But this is a greater redemption that we have. You know, 2 Peter 2.1, you don't need to turn there, but that's a verse that people misunderstand a lot. 2 Peter 2.1 uh, says that, that uh, I was talking about the, the people coming out of the Exodus. You know, they denied the Lord who bought them. So what happened? They denied the Lord who bought them. So for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness until that whole generation died. And then their children went into the promised land. That's what Peter's telling us in Second Peter 2.1. Anyway, let's close with Isaiah 55. I'll read it in the New King James. I kind of like the way it reads. I like it the way it reads in the Old King James, but I'll read it in the New King James. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you, have no, you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come by wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I'll make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David. Indeed, I've given him as a witness to the people a leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know. And nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he's glorified you. And it goes on. And listen to it for yourself. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. I'll tell you this. If I didn't believe that, I couldn't do what I do. Because as a preacher, you see very few visible results. A lot of times you see heartache. A lot of times you see, you know, despair and destruction. A lot of times you just see things that you wish you never saw. Every preacher could tell you that, you know. But I believe in the Word of God. And I believe it won't return void. And I believe if we use His methods and we preach His Word, which is a whole lot better than my Word, 
if we use his methods and his word and his truth, then lives will be changed. They will be changed. And we've seen that too. We've seen God do that in marvelous, wonderful ways. And that's another reason we like to have people give their testimonies. Because it reminds us again of what God has done, is doing. And if you're not here without, if you're here without Christ, it's what God can do for you. You need to call on him. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We believe your word. We don't believe it ever just goes out and dies accomplishing nothing, Father. We do marvel that sometimes it accomplishes what we didn't intend for it to accomplish. Because just as surely as the word of God can go forth and and cause fruit to salvation and eternal life, it also can go forth and cause condemnation. So, Lord, it's up to you how the word goes forth. It's up to you how the seed is sown in the heart of the individual. That's your job, Father. But our job here at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church is to proclaim the truth from the word of God. Help us to do that faithfully. And may Jesus Christ be glorified. And bless our sister churches that are doing likewise, Father. It was so good to be with them yesterday, and at least their messengers. So good to hear their heart beat the same way that our heart beats. Good to hear, Father, that they're persevering through difficulties, sometimes very hard difficulties, but persevering nonetheless to preach the gospel. And may Jesus Christ be glorified. In his name we pray. Amen.